Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 51 of RQM Plus Live. This is leveraging your medical directors and clinicians for successful regulatory submissions. Uh, thank you for joining us today. My name is Stephen Bernacki, Marketing Principal at RQM Plus. And before we get started, I'm going to briskly introduce uh, RQM Plus and today's panelists. So RQM Plus is the largest international provider of regulatory quality and clinical consulting services for medical device and diagnostics manufacturers. Uh, RQM Plus Live is our interactive live show where our expert panelists answer your questions about timely industry topics and challenges. So if you have questions on your mind today, we encourage you to ask them by typing them into the questions area uh, in the webinar interface. So today's panelists are, first up we have Amy Smirthwaite. Uh, she is Senior Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation. Uh, Amy has a PhD and she's been a leading figure and author on several MDCG guidance documents and she's also the formal global head of clinical compliance at BSI. Next we have Sally Sennett, Medical Director. Sally's held numerous positions in regulatory and quality in the device industry and currently provides medical guidance for CERs, PMCF, and related activities. Uh, third we have Andrew Tanaris, uh, Medical Director as well. Uh, Andrew is a consultant neurosurgeon uh, and also has lengthy regulatory experience as a former clinical expert at BSI. And our final panelist is Dolciana Chan, Principal Consultant at RQM Plus. So Dolciana's significant regulatory experience comes from being a scientific reviewer of medical devices at FDA and as, an, and as a policy analyst in FDA's Office of Clinical Evidence and Analysis. Uh, and our moderator today is Lisa Kassavant, Executive Vice President at RQM Plus. And Lisa, I'm gonna hand it over to you right now. Go ahead. Thanks, Steve. We will jump right in. So to just set the stage for today, let's start with Sally. You know, what are what are the areas of the regulatory process where you think we could be leveraging medical directors more? Yeah, thank you, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, this is something we've been thinking about for a while. And to be honest, I think physicians are major stakeholders in the medical device space, and they can contribute quite obviously to design development and clinical trials, which I think everybody's familiar with. But I think where, where they're underused is in the regulatory space. And I think today we're going to focus very much on CERs and PMCF. But even within the CER, I mean, they can contribute to scope, scoping the, the state of the art, intended purpose, indications, um, clinical risks, and of course, the all-important benefit risk discussion at the end. And that should lead on to PMCF. And I think this is really where we can help, particularly with the transition in Europe from MDD to MDR. And I'll let Dulciana comment on the um, input on the FDA level. Um, I guess for the medical directors, uh, from a consulting perspective, um, I've seen uh, just the importance of the medical directors early in the um, pre-market process, um, specifically in pre-submission meetings. Um, a lot of times the uh, medical director is the one that tells the story, explains the device, um, kind of develops a rapport with FDA. And um, I found that when the uh, medical director um, is really engaged with the FDA um, medical officer, um, not only do you get uh, a lot of product feedback, um, you get insightful questions from the clinician that can really um, highlight what FDA's concerns are and give you information early. I think, you know, from, from an EU perspective, the whole thing is really framed around the clinical evidence. I mean, as we know, there's been a huge evolution in uh, European regulatory requirements over the last 15 to 20 years. And, you know, the, 
the expertise on the notified body side has just gone up exponentially as well. So it used to be sufficient to have a technical background in the medical devices industry, say five years R&D experience. Most of the people had PhDs, but it just got more and more specific and more and more narrow. And then in 2014, the clinicians were brought in internally rather than being externally. And having that, the whole thing tends to hinge around the medical, the, the medical risk, the intended purpose, how the devices are used practically. And because the evidence requirements have gone up so much, having those medical directors to feed in really helps you to make those risk benefit arguments that will help you to keep, you know, not only streamline the process, but some, keep some of those indications that maybe at first glance you thought you didn't have enough, uh, enough uh, evidence for. So um, yeah, I think, I think it, it's really critical. And I think also from my BSI perspective, when we first brought clinicians in-house, we didn't, it sounds horrible to say, we didn't realize how valuable they were. We brought in external clinicians when we needed them, but we thought there was lots of things that, oh, we know all about that. We've worked with surgeons in, in industry. We know what the risks are of these devices. And then when the regulations changed and we had to bring internal clinicians in-house and use them all the time, we really learned Actually, there's a lot of things that we didn't know that we didn't know, and it added so much value to the process and did kind of facilitate and streamline things in a lot of ways. Have you guys found other reasons, you know, why else is it important to involve clinicians in your submission process? You know, how else has it helped that you've seen? I think, I mean, I think um, Amy's already touched on it in that the notified bodies are bringing in clinicians and they have a lot of expertise and uh, on their side. And in order to talk the same language and to meet them sort of on a on a level playing field and to get your um, your story over, it, it makes a lot of sense to include clinicians on the side of the manufacturers as well. Um, in in a way, the medical directors can help um, reinvent the entire submission, and I think that goes mostly for um, lower risk devices that have been around in the market for quite a long time. And this is because the high-risk devices may be specific to a particular clinical condition from the get-go and therefore doesn't require a lot of input. But the lower risk of the devices or the ones that have been longer in the market, there's definitely a need there to reinvent, to almost write things from the beginning. I think from what I've seen in my experience in BSI as well as in Argon Plus is that um, a lot of these lower-risk devices were developed on the basis of input from key opinion leaders in the past and it was kind of they can be used everywhere but as we know the intended purpose is now a very key component of the entire submission everything kind of falls back to the intended purpose and it's not just an intended purpose it's also the MDR requires clinical conditions to be almost called out and this is where things can get very very tight so just to give an example, if you have a tennis machine on, on the past, we know it kind of helps with pain conditions. Now, I think they have to specify the pain conditions. I mean, chronic pain is almost a, sub, a different subspecialty in medicine. They can't just capture everything. It is, isn't it? Uh, they can't just capture everything. Um, they have to you know, think about what kind of data they, they're going to um, they have and, and how to substantiate the intended purpose. And from what we get from our colleagues um, in the IVDR space, the same, the manufacturers seem to ha be having the same problem with intended purpose. So one of the most common 
feedback or questions coming from the notified bodies in the IDBR space is again this intended purpose. I think actually that touches on another area as well and that's both in terms of involving your medical directors early um, to get those, those things scoped out properly but how they can feed in later on and so what I'm thinking of is in the beginning realizing that you do have to have in the EU particularly sufficient clinical evidence to cover all your intended patient populations, all your treatment indications, all your anatomical locations. Um, there can be justifications that can be made sometimes. It can be justifiable to say, well, this indication is extrapolatable to this indication, or no, but you or or you might say, no, we absolutely need rock solid because of the risks of this patient population. We definitely need data for this. So involving your medical directors early means that you're more likely to see those pitfalls and you want to find them early rather than waiting till you get to the submission and the notified body is asking the question. But then when you do get to the the the, the submission and you're getting questions back. I think, again, they can give you those insights to see, is there a better way of answering this question? Because you might think, oh, they're saying I definitely can't have this indication or whatever. But it could mm -hmm. be that that kind of pragmatic insight into how the things are actually used, that, that that medical director could help you see, oh, actually, we can make this kind of a justification or this is why the benefit risk is, is borne out here. Yeah, and I think that's pretty fundamental. I mean, I was mentioning the, the benefit risk analysis, and of course the 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 risks can differ across different patient populations. And you know, for for an example, I think if you're using something like an insulin pump for a, a type one diabetic, a child, the risk involved in that is going to be very different to managing an elderly patient, which is who is borderline managing with drugs and and you know, the, and maybe gestational diabetes is something else again, where you, you need to have very tight control. So the indications will differ a little bit. The risks will differ depending on when you've got a pregnant mother or a child or an elderly person. So all these things need to be taken into account. You need to split out all those patient populations. And then, as Amy said, see, can you logically combine them? Will the benefit risk look similar in that group, in a group or subgroup of those patient populations? So, yeah, this is very important. Uh, Sally, I just wanted to ask you. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just, I just wondering, for Dulciana, you know, as an FDA reviewer, could you see like submissions that involve clinicians versus not like or intended uses off base or? Yeah, you see that um, on occasion. Um, the intended use obviously is very important, and I think a lot of times you'll see um, sponsors um, either uh, comment come in with a too broad of an indication or they, uh, just like you've talked about, haven't really identified their patient population correctly or um, uh, know when they can, um, when it's right to specify a certain subpopulation, when it's important to do that. Um, yeah, I just want to ask Sally from her experience, do you think there's going to be a problem with tightening these indications and therefore now clinicians because they're used to their old ways using devices almost like off-label yeah yeah this is an interesting discussion i think um if, if we look at the transition from mdd to mdr the uh, the regulators are asking for a lot more clinical data to support each of these separate indications and in the past, yeah, the intended purpose statements have been very broad. So by narrowing those indications, you are potentially opening up the possibility of off-label use. And again, this is where the clinicians can be very useful. As Amy touched upon saying, okay, well, it's kind of 
you know, okay, this you could consider as off-label use because it's dangerous, or this is not off-label use, this is an obvious extension. Um, but I think it's something, it's a bit theoretical at the moment, let's see how it pans out, but I think there is huge scope for off-label use in future and how that should be defined and how that should be handled. I guess um, if I can... Yeah, so if I could add to that, um, yeah, I think it's also device specific in some device areas. Um, there, FDA considers um, the practice of medicine a lot more than in other certain device areas. And, you know, you got to walk that fine line saying like, you know, are we going to map out exactly how patients are treated or still uh, keep that practice of medicine in mind? Um, also, one thing that comes to mind, Lisa and, and team, is rare diseases or um, unmet clinical needs. So, if uh, if a manufacturer wants to go down that way, that's there is obviously you know um, a text in in the MDR that specifies this or um, in the MedDev. But um, I think this is where a clinician can be very, very useful in identify that unmet clinical need, identify why um, there is a population out there that definitely needs it, why there is no other treatments that are not suitable, and therefore, you know, how can you justify this even though you may not have enough data? So, um, uh, rare diseases is mostly a pharmaceutical concept, but I think the, the unmet clinical need is something that we have seen. Uh, within the medical devices industry. Yeah, um, again, on, from like the FDA side, um, a lot of the humanitarian device exemptions are clinician driven. Um, there has been initiatives or there currently are initiatives from FDA to encourage industry um, to develop devices for rare diseases and um, what they call orphan products. And um, on a related but uh, different side, there is also a compassionate use program or expanded access uh, program that's uh, mostly uh, clin uh, clinician driven. And it usually starts with a clinician request to use a investigational device for one patient, maybe outside the scope of its intended use or labeling. And then, you know, it, these, uh, this what starts off as a single patient's um, uh, procedure can um, eventually lead to an investigational device study for a specific population. There's lots of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have an audience question. Um, <laughs> how can you include your external medical experts in your QMS processes and training? to be able to participate in an organization's procedures for risk management and clinical evaluation. Amy Smalling, you want to take it, Amy? No, I was wondering if Sally wanted to. I've, I've got thoughts, but I was wondering if Sally wanted to, to pop I, in. I was hoping you'd take it, Amy. It sounds very quality regulatory. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's more straightforward than that. It's a question of sort of getting them in at the beginning, talking about, you know, what the device is supposed to do, getting their inputs on what the risks are, um, what the potential pitfalls are, I mean, they're not going to be feeding in on manufacturing process validations and 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 those sorts of things. But in terms of you know how you structure your your um, clinical development plan, in terms of how you uh, are looking at scoping the intended purpose of the device, um, how you then would structure that you know your buckets of evidence for for demonstrating the device does what it's supposed to. All of those things, if you 
kind of get them in early in the process, they'll be able to feed in through that, that development cycle. Yeah, actually, thinking about this, I think I know where they're going with this. I think in terms of um, physicians, you've really got two roles. You've got the internal industry physicians who have some, um, they're more generalists on the whole, they understand the regulations, and these are usually the ones employed by the manufacturers. And then you've got your external ones. I think this is what they're talking about, is how do you bring in that external um, expertise within the, the, you know, the, to the quality system? And I don't, don't think that should be a problem because that internal physician is the one who's going to take the responsibility for that information. So that will be your liaison person. So you use your external consultants as advisors and you know you will maybe have consulting contracts with them or whatever but from a QMS point of view ultimately the choice to use that advice and the responsibility for using that information would lie with the manufacturer and in this case it would be the internal physician. I don't know whether that answers the question, but I think that might be what they're getting at. I think it does. I think often when you look at a quality management system for a standard class two device company, the medical director will be, or the clinicians will be involved in confirming the client requirements, right? The input to the device to start product development. And then they'll be on the review cycle with the risk file, and then may not be involved again until validation of the device, which is pretty far along so if you want to improve it, I think you need to include them more in product development and in those review cycles than just the bare minimum. Absolutely. Okay, next question. Uh, scoping state of the art has been a huge challenge. You know, we get questions on that all of the time. So how could clinicians help with that? Yeah, we love this bit. Take it away, Andrew. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think the state of the art is one of those things that clinicians can help because because of the rate of change that is happening out there. So every clinical trial, if you think about it, that happens adds a little bit of knowledge and potentially could change the state of the art. So it's important to for the manufacturer to keep out uh, sorry to keep up to date, and this is where the input of the clinician is important. And because the this is in evolving situation now. From my personal experience, um, like I'll give an example. So of patients with Parkinson's who could not be managed with medication, you had uh, something that's called an apomorphine infusion, and then the deep brain stimulation came, and they're both kind of complementary, and you could, uh, you could go either way to try to treat those. But in the last three years, for example, there's been something that's called a duodopa intestinal gel that comes in now. There is a possibility that DBS, deep brain stimulation, may become obsolete. Unless, if now the manufacturer just focuses on the state of the art, purely on the range of the devices, it doesn't take into consideration the, the medical aspects of the options, as we're saying, the treatment options that are out there, they may actually go to the notified body and they have a good clinical reviewer who knows about this, and they're going to fail because they haven't considered all the treatment options for that particular patient. Another couple of areas I, I just want to highlight of how things um, uh, are moving, how fast things are moving is, for example, the area of robotic surgery, robotic assisted surgery. There's no regulations out there. There's not much um, you know, knowledge about this, but the robots are used actually in practice right now as we speak. And yes, there is literature out there. So unless you have somebody who's involved or understands or has a network, so the network is also important, um, then you may miss all those important developments. 
recently, myself and Amy, we were looking at the impact of the MDCG reclassification, the spinal products. And we realized that the last guidance that came from the North American Spinal Society about outcomes is from 2006. So there hasn't been any further guidance document about outcomes in 15 years. And I think this is important because for people to realize, because if you have somebody who's disconnected from the clinical um, arena and uh, they just read you know, the latest guideline, they may just take that particular document but there has been so much development since 15 years of development. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been any. It means that there hasn't a new guideline or consensus document has not been issued. So this is how fast things are moving. And, and on the other hand, it can actually go very slow sometimes. And I think um, we traditionally do five-year searches for our state-of-the-art, but sometimes for a device mm. that has maybe been on the market for 20, 25 years, all the interesting publications will have come out around the time where these these devices were new and interesting so you may have to take your searches back a lot further to pick up those key papers in that area and sometimes a conversation with a knowledgeable physician will say yeah nothing's changed in the last 20 years you can safely go back otherwise you could potentially be looking at plowing through years and years and years of literature looking for that needle in the haystack which is you know the beginnings of a of a of, of a new development and there your physicians can probably help you sort of bypass some of that work. It gives you a good indication of where the state of the art is now. So sometimes it's fast and sometimes it's very slow. This kind of brings up a kind of uh, tangential issue of just making sure though that your medical directors do understand the regulatory framework and some of the subtleties and, and expectations that come up. Because I'm thinking of, of uh, my experience at BSI before when we relied pretty much exclusively on external clinicians and what we found is because they didn't understand what the regulatory requirements were they would say sometimes that something was fine or this wasn't an issue because they didn't know how to frame it and so we had to pose our questions to external clinicians very very explicitly so they so they would know what we were worried about that we because otherwise you, you could end up getting an answer back oh yeah that's fine and then i remember having some conversations with them and when you dig down into it and say, oh, well, I said that was fine because that's what everybody else is doing. But actually, no, I don't think it's fine at all. There's this risk, that risk, the other risk. Or, you know, oh, well, I didn't, I thought 15 patients would be enough. I don't, I don't really know anything about statistics. I thought 15 patient, patients sounded like a good thing. So <laughs> who are you talking to, Amy? <laughs> yeah, this were somebody who was, was I it was it's risky if I say it was maxillofacial, but anyway. <laughs> But it was so you've got to make sure that sure. they do understand the framework around it so that they the device they're giving you is consistent with the expectations. So I think there's a good kind of marriage of expertise there to be had. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I did actually have that on the 15 patients. Because so I was like, mm, I was hoping you were gonna say 15 patients was way too low. Don't come back and tell me it's fine. <laughs> um we have a question from the audience. Oh. Uh, answer. Uh, can you use the designing surgeons to be part of the process? Why not? Yeah. Is it, are you, is it, is it worry about conf conflicts of interest? If, if it's a worry about conflicts of interest, it just needs to be disclosed. So as long as you disclose what the conflicts are, then that you know that can be taken into account. Like if you're if they're signing off on a report or signing off on whatever, they you know they're notified, but it might come back and say they possibly might ask for somebody who who's not directly involved or benefiting from it. But normally they just want to see that the 
the conflicts are disclosed. And also, I think, um, um, yeah, you can you can obviously involve them, and uh, it will help when you think how those devices are used within the clinical pathways that are always evolving again. So. Um, it's important to think about the pragmatism and what is happening in real life. How do these devices fit into the clinical pathways? How can they be used? In what situations they can be used? Um, also, um, just coming back to the state of the art, Lisa, for a second. Um, sure. I listened to the webinar uh, 49, which was about PCERS, which was excellent content there. And if you remember, there were manufacturers were coming back uh, again and again with questions about similar devices. So do you remember how they were asking, like, how can we define the similar devices? And this is exactly where you can use your medical director, your clinician to identify those similar devices where then you can use this framework to define your state of the art and, you know, tell the story, as we say. Again, they're making sure they understand what similar device means in the regulatory context. Mm. I think that also, um raises another point in that the state of the art is not just limited to similar devices. You need to come at the state of the art and scope it in terms of the, the indications, so the, the medical conditions that are being treated. And sometimes that means that alternative therapies, the so-called alternative therapies, could be surgery, there could be other devices, there could be drugs, there could be all sorts of things. And it's very important that if all those therapies have relevance to that same patient population, that same disease severity, that they are all included in, in the state of the art. And that's quite a common error is that some of these get missed off. Alternatively, you can create a lot of unnecessary work by describing the treatment of the entire disease process from very mild to very severe. And the notified bodies can say, okay, well, we are considering moderate disease, therefore not interested in mild, we'll get rid of those five pages, not interested in severe, we'll get rid of those pages. And all that work is effectively wasted. And I think it is very important. First of all, does your device have relevance with this patient population compared to other therapies? And then, does your device actually perform and is it as safe as similar devices on the market? But Dosian, I just wanted to ask you, you were talking about practice of medicine a little bit earlier and I presume that is pretty much your way of, of talking about the state of the art, is that fair? Um, it's related, I think a little bit um, different, like uh, in the, it's a little bit nuanced in the sense that FDA doesn't want to tell physicians how to practice medicine, mm -hmm. uh, but they do want to make sure that they're using um, devices safely <laughs> and within labeling. Um, but for the, the thing that's uh, closest to state-of-the-art um, for FDA submissions is the uh, description of the standard of care, which you were um, sim similarly discussing. Um, for pre-market submissions, um, a lot of times for devices, the standard of care is just describing similar devices um, or alternative devices. But in certain instances, uh, you're right, the broader context of standard of care includes other uh, treatment modalities such as, yeah, the drugs, biologics, um, combination products. Um, and uh, for certain regulatory submissions like breakthrough designation requests, this that's actually required. And a lot of times um, sponsors forget about that, that there are different requirements for different um, submissions, just because we're so used to just comparing to devices. 
We have an audience question. This one's definitely for Amy because she just told me yesterday we should do a whole show on this topic. So, one process for early understanding of the level of clinical data needed for MDR certification is through proposed clinical path review by the notified body. But the same notified body glut and delays observed for certification are similar for this vehicle. Notified body clinicians appear to be too busy with certification to even address clinical path review. Are there other approaches for companies to understand what level of clinical evidence is needed prior to submission for a full application? Is this talking about the clinical development plan as it applies to legacy devices? Didn't quite, you said I just brought this up as a topic yesterday. Well, you brought up understanding level of clinical evidence that's needed, I uh, guess. Yeah, okay. hey, did you yeah. not obviously bring up the notify body glut. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that this is sort of a, this is critical. It's almost like um, I think about it. I I almost think of it in terms of so now I'm trying to piece together the different parts of the question that came through and it was talking about notified body gluts. And I didn't know if that's actually relevant to the answer because I know that yeah there's a problem with capacity and so on. But in in terms of the level of clinical evidence. Um, Amy, I think he's trying to understand how do you figure out what's needed when there's nobody to talk to? Like you're not, notified getting, body or in, you're not getting feedback from the notified body clinician. Oh, you never would. You never would get feedback from the notified body. Even if they could respond tomorrow, they're not going to tell you what's enough. They can just tell you you've met the requirement, you haven't met the requirement. And the prohibitions on anything that remotely resembles consulting have just got stricter and stricter and stricter. And that's why, like at BSI, uh, they have the restriction of three rounds of questions because what they were observing is that the reviewers would get to six, seven, eight rounds of questions. And as each round of questions went through, they were giving a little bit more. And then sometimes they just get frustrated and say, why aren't you doing it like this? And that's like a major <laughs> Well, what is this then, Amy? He's saying proposed clinical path review is the early is the process for early understanding. I have not used that. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But levels of clinical evidence, I think this is comes back to this fundamental thing of, of understanding. And the yes, clinicians understand this better because they're using the devices. They understand the patient populations. But what is the device intended to do? What are the associated benefits of doing that? What are the risks associated with it? What, what outcomes can you expect to get with other available treatment options? So you've got this patient coming to you. They've got this condition. You want to treat them. What is realistic in terms of their improvement or prognosis or whatever? And you use that then to create a pathway which explains, okay, these are all the things it's supposed to do. These are the benefits of doing that. These are the risks. And this is the kind of evidence that we need to demonstrate each of those things. And depending on the criticality, the novelty, um, the, the risk, the similarity to other devices, you can approach these things in lots of different ways. So if I'm answering this question, I think just having that clinical insight can help you scope that argument. I almost think of it as like when you get to the end, almost like an elevator pitch of if you want to say, yes, this device has got enough data, it should be on the market. It's like, OK, well, explain to me. <laughs> explain to me. Why is that? Oh, so go on. Go on, Sally. Amy, is, is it possible to get feedback from the notified bodies at the clinical development plan level before they commit to large trials, for example? No, absolutely not. But what you can do um, for some of the devices, uh, the, the, the um, is it class three 
I can never remember if it's class three and implantable or if it's the class three implantable and the two B active devices. I remember it's either the article 54 or the other, but there's one category of devices for which you can get feedback from the expert group in the commission as to whether your clinical strategy is acceptable. But in terms of the notified body, they, they just can't do that at all. They used no. to, BSI used to offer a, a service and then it just got shut down. It just, no. you know, it, and to be honest with you, sorry, Amy, I, I think that the manufacturer remains the expert in their own devices. So if they have a well, well thought through risk based strategy and they've consulted all the right people, including physicians, and got a good story and developed a good plan and said, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. I guess that's that's probably the best way to to be successful. Um, I think this is more of a comment than a question, but I will put it on here. This is from a clinician at a large device manufacturer says, um, I have over 20 years experience in biotech, pharma and device, worked in healthcare and inter interacted with physician entrepreneurs during my career. I have performed clinical evals for notified bodies and this included consultation with mostly external clinicians. No doubt due to the complexity of this subject matter, it is always advisable to have clinical expertise involved on both the manufacturer side, including R&D, and the notified body and regulatory agency side. However, in many cases, the input from the clinician was not exactly helpful on topic or just beside the point. Now that notified bodies work with internally employed physicians, this is hopefully getting better. The downside, though, is that at the very moment the physician steps into the notified body world, she is no longer an active clinician. I think this will remain a challenge. Also, the view of the clinician can be somewhat nonchalant with respect to risk analysis and management. A risk is declared low because patient could be treated with antibiotics. I feel like this is so against how Sally and Andrew operate, so I just wanted to give you guys a chance to comment. Uh, well, go on, Andrew. Well, uh, it's funny that he says that, and I, I guess I agree partly to what, what the comment is saying. Um, when you talk about risks, um, I just want to emphasize I'm very passionate as a clinician, um, but also on the regulatory aspect and the consultancy we're doing here. It is not just a number. Obviously, numbers are important, trends are important. But when I when I was in you know, my previous role and, and somebody said, oh, you have a 1% risk of meningitis, that's, that's okay, isn't it? And I wanted to emphasize that meningitis can be a devastating disease where basically a patient gets wrecked for the entire life. So even though it's 1%, which is a very low, I guess, percentage, it doesn't mean anything unless you put it within the wider context of what happens to an actual human being. So obviously, from a regulatory point of view, there's the risk management, there's procedures to be followed, but I think you have to think a little bit outside and put this in the, into the context of, of a particular patient, think about that patient. This is, I guess, where the, what the value a physician brings, which is in effect, it's the intermediary between the three column pillar. If you think about it, you have the manufacturer, you have the patient, right? The physician is the middle pillar in between those three pillars. And it's what in the pharma, in the US, they call this uh, the, the learned intermediary, there's actually a legal term about the physician. Uh, I think Luciana um, touched on that uh, when he said that the FDA couldn't really tell them because the moment, um, you know, the, the moment the manufacturer has given all the documentation, it's down to this learned intermediary now to practice what they think they should. Someone notes that 
uh, in the old days, BSI carried out clinical strategy reviews. Yeah, okay. and we hated them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I think picking up on the on the risk topic again. Um, for starters, I I think it's fair to say that some companies are quite uh, not quite up to date in terms of incorporating all the clinical risks into their risk management programs. This is, seems to be the bit that has been sort of addressed last. So I think the engineering, manufacturing, all this side of it is done very well. Clinical isn't always done that well, and there are some problems with this. Is an interesting comment from that, from that question. Um, First of all, I think physicians have quite a poor understanding of the difference between device-related risks, procedural risks, um, disease progression, this kind of thing. Because from the patient perspective, we don't really care. If the patient gets better and we know what to do, that's all we worry about as physicians. But the other thing is when you start to put those risks into the risk management and sort of quantify them, then it, it gets quite difficult. Now you have to put the clinical perspective on. For example, if you've got um, an adverse event like bleeding or hemorrhage, what does that mean? Well, how much blood are we talking about to start with? And what, where is the blood? For example, if you've got a bleeding finger, I'm not going to worry too much, but if it's an extradural hemorrhage, obviously the, the clinical impact is enormous. And that's, that's a very crude example. But I think you need to look at these clinical risks um, you know, in a lot more detail and break them down, what could be device related, what is procedural related, how does it impact the different patient populations? And again, we come back to that, you've got to stratify the data and see which patient populations are gonna be most at risk. There are certain risks in a neonate, for example, where the physiology is completely different and the metabolic rate is a lot higher and the anatomy is smaller and everything happens so quickly. Those risks will be very different from to an adult patient. And this applies across the board. And that's something where you absolutely need physician input into clinical risk management. Can they identify the harms? And how do they, when you come to quantification, what does that mean? Um. I think on, on your point about device-related side effects or adverse events and, and non-device-related adverse events, it's very interesting. So as I, as I was, was implanting devices, I always thought that infection is definitely, I am to blame, right? Then going to the um, notified body and looking at the risk documents, I realized, oh, there may be problems with sterilization. I never, I never, I have, I never even thought about that. So you see where the difference is you may have a you know a specialist a physician specialist who can't think outside the box because they think whatever is given to them is just perfect and then everything else is is their problem and trying to decipher exactly when you have an infection whether it is a sterilization process or the box was partly open and it was never picked up which is something that it would be locked as a complaint within the risk management process and whether it has to do with inherent patient uh, factors or actually the surgery and the way the surgery was performed to try to decipher that complaint when it comes back from the field is really an art on itself. Um, also on the risk I want to touch a little bit about the a concept that is not um, probably thought of the one about near miss and what does near miss happens you know what what does it mean in, in a hospital environment. Um, a near miss would be something that you know something bad was about to happen but somebody stopped it and i think when i look at the regulatory elements this is like a non-reportable event um not i think i'm sure about this because basically nothing happened to the patient but the near miss event is very very important to consider yourself to understand why 
did we reach the stage where it was almost uh, about to happen, but nobody kind of stopped it. So it was almost stopped by luck in effect. So it is these areas where a clinician will say, look, this is important to pick up now and consider in your risk management because you might find a, a disaster happening five years down the line and then you have to recall products and you know as manufacturers i'm sure they know much better than me what that means financially we have a couple more audience questions um this one's definitely for amy a clinical evaluation <laughs> specialist at the notify body asked could you enlighten us on where the border between consulting and providing information stands yeah well basically you can't provide solutions you can i think you you have to say, let's see, you have to put it in terms of, can you justify why this is? You can't say, say you're looking at some bit of evidence and you clearly think that is not enough. That's not enough patients or they haven't stratified the data or whatever. You can't say that's not enough patients or I don't think you have enough evidence for this or I think you've got evidence for that, but not for that. Um, anything where you're leading them to an answer essentially results in, in what would be considered a, a Remember what the term from the ISO guidance is, but effectively it means you, you're at risk of auditing your own work because you've given them the solution. They come back and they give you the solution you've asked for. They're like, "Oh yes, my idea was brilliant. That's great." <laughs> but what you can do is say, like, so you're looking at it and you're thinking, "No way is 15 patients enough?" Or they really need to do a PMCF. Then you can say, "Can you please provide a justification in line with quoting the regulation for why?" this fully demonstrates or you know and or if, if it's like say you feel they haven't stratified um the the patient populations you can say please can you provide a very comprehensive list of all the intended treatment indications and how the data that you have maps to that so it's really just kind of guiding i shouldn't say guiding the manufacturer inviting the manufacturer to explain why their data is sufficient rather than leading them to the answer if that makes sense it can be a subtle distinction sometimes and i, I know uh, many of us probably including well i know including myself have, have gone on the wrong side of that unintentionally sometimes <laughs> dulciana, can, you, can you tell us dulciana where that line is with fda like it's so different right i was gonna say uh i wanted to jump in with the fda perspective because yeah, just in this conversation, I'm hearing so many contrasts, like FDA is happy to give you feedback about your <laughs> clinical evidence and your proposed plan for uh, providing clinical evidence, how you're going to collect it. They are happy to talk to you about it. And honestly, it is a little bit more collaborative as well. It's not, it's definitely not, um, you must do it this way. There's definitely that room for the justification for how you've um, kind of set up what it, whatever your trial or uh, whatever your evidence that you're planning to provide, there's definitely that, but there's definitely, um, yeah, FDA's just because of their submissions and the expertise that's there, they provide a lot of guidance. They provide, um, and they'll even tell you, you know, if you're going down the wrong path, they'll say, we've seen this before and it's not the way to go, you know? So I think FDA is a more open in that sense and more, um, likely to continue talking to you. It, it's, uh, there's usually no limit. There might be some. <laughs> there's. Uh, it's very hard to hit a limit there. Um, but um, I'm trying to think what else was the, um, if there was any other contrast. But um, 
Yeah, so I think FDA is a little bit more collaborative and they don't find that line as uh, strongly drawn, I should say. I think the, the, the one of the things that sparks that difference is the commercial nature of notified bodies. So they are a profit-making organization. And so then the, the, the competent authorities can be very concerned and I, I don't think this is a I don't think this is a fair criticism because everyone I worked with in the notified bodies were, were very ethical and professional and had very you know had high standards. But I think the, the concern is that being a commercial organization, you might be just wanting to certify any advice of any type because you're afraid of losing the business kind of thing. So the notified bodies are audited relentlessly, <laughs> just all the time, constantly audited, and they're just looking out. One one of the many things they're looking out for is are you doing anything that looks like consulting? And if you do, you get a non-conformity, then it goes into your quality system. And you've got to put ever more controls into your quality system for how you avoid consulting. So, Next audience question. Uh, what's your opinion on software as a medical device, trends on classification of software as a medical device, and how to take help from clinicians for scoping in this scenario? I could start that one if you like. Uh, from the physician point of view, um, rightly or wrongly, I consider software a little bit of a black box. And I think we go right back to basics and say, what is the intended purpose? What is it going to do? And then you apply exactly the same recipe. Now, there is an MDCG guidance about software, which will help you classify into one of three different types, which I can't remember off the top of my head now. I mean, we'll know more. But, you know, when you when you get to software as a medical device in its own right, it's not just driving another device, um, then I think you you basically approach it in a similar way. But that's coming from a physician perspective. I mean, that that doesn't tackle anything to do with development and validation and um, testing and all that kind of thing. But I'm sure the others will have different views on that question. Well, it's, well, it's, it's an interesting thing because one of the, the aspects of software is that the classification can depend on the risks to the patient. So actually your clinician can advise you of what those relative risks are. Or is it risk of death? Is it, you know, and, and knowing what the classification is, although theoretically it doesn't affect the clinical evidence you need, because if you need to demonstrate something and it needs to be scientifically valid, you need to demonstrate it, but it does affect the criticality and it might reduce the amount of justifications you can make. It might mean that you have to have much more robust data sets depending on, on the relative risks of the device. So I wonder if that's where the question was coming from. I don't know. I think I think if if it's in Lisa, hopefully that Sally has answered, Amy has answered. If it's in just like another tool, it depends obviously whether it is driving the device or is it just acting um you know as an accessory but if it's driving if it's seen like another tool and as amy and sally mentioned you take the intended purpose you consider the risks then it shouldn't really matter obviously it has different technological um risks uh, attached compared to scuffle right so you have the cyber security but other other than that if it is seen as a tool within you know the range of tools that a physician has to use for a patient then that's that's how you approach it. Okay. Um, if I could, oh, could ahead. I add one thing go ahead, about software where mm -hmm. I've seen the clinician come, um, the perspective come in for software uh, is what 
the physician is going to do with the information that the software as a medical device provides, how it impacts your clinical decision-making. That is a question that has been coming up a lot lately, uh, just as I've seen. You have different different range of software, right? So diagnostic in this particular and mm -hmm. um, yeah. So what about CERs and PER specifically? Um, seems like the obvious place for clinicians. What what should the clinician role be there? Yeah, I, I think we've covered a lot of this already, and I think the crux of it is to help develop that benefit-risk analysis. Um, what I would like to say is that um, although we have some extremely knowledgeable IVDR colleagues at RQM+, they're not here today, and so I can do my best to answer that question in the context of IVDR. And we did speak to them, and um, I think it's well accepted by the notified bodies that the the, the medical specialists in the context of IDR, uh, IVDR are the lab scientists. They clearly know more about the tests and how they perform and what they can do and what the risks are um, than, than the physicians would, definitely. But um, we were talking to them, our colleagues, and um, they came up with some quite interesting scenarios where physicians are actually quite helpful. And one of them was in the context of a D-dimer test which is a test used to um, identify patients at risk of pulmonary embolus. Now, these tests usually have a very high negative predictive value. So if a neg test is negative, you can assume the patient does not have a pulmonary embolus, is not at risk of it. Whereas the, the positive predictive value can be quite low. And in this particular case, it's around 50-60%, which um, basically implies that 50% of those patients did not would not have a, a pulmonary embolus, and yet they're all you know, sent through for further investigation. So chest imaging effectively, which carries its own risks. And the um, this was when um, Carlos was actually, I don't know, I can't remember the circumstances now, but anyway, the, the question to the physician was, can you justify putting half of your patients through chest imaging in order, does that risk, is that outweighed by the benefits of actually ident um, diagnosing pulmonary embolus? And the answer in that case, I think, was yes. And this is where physicians can give you a context, the clinical risk, because at face value, it, it looks terrible, but actually, if you look at the big picture, it makes sense. So these kind of nuanced decisions uh, actually even come into IVDR. From, from a CR point of view, Lisa, I wanted to touch, um, uh, to discuss a little bit the importance of literature search and how physicians can help with this, because I think it is, considered not a very important uh, matter, but uh, on the notified body, um, there were a lot of non-conformities that would ensue from a bad literature search. Because if you didn't get your literature search correctly, uh, you wouldn't get your state of the art correctly. You wouldn't get your data for your device correctly. And therefore, how can you justify your clinical, uh, your benefit risk argument, right? So everything kind of trickles down from there. So once you have your intended purpose set, the next is the literature search, and it is, it is not something like doing an SEO for a web page where you just throw, um, you know, what sounds like appropriate keywords on Google and come up with, you know, come up with a search. I think where physicians can help, and I'm not, I'm not saying that physicians are, uh, you know, um, excellent in literature search. Good. They can help is, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think where you can help is to define a clinical question. So what is your research question or your clinical question? What are you trying to find? If you put this into the context with the right target groups, the right um, 
population, there are clinical indications, then you can have somebody who, let's say, more experienced to run the literature search and therefore after that come back and discuss the output, see you know whether uh, the output makes sense, whether you need to refine the strategy to come up with something that is solid, it's not going to be challenged at the notified body. And also just also a quick... Go on. Sorry, quick addition, it's just to make sure that all the different vocabulary and terminology is covered as well. The other thing I was thinking about is that that potential for streamlining the SOTA review. If you put it in the context of a lot of people are, the, based on CERs I've seen, a lot of them don't seem to understand that the purpose of the SOTA review is not just to kind of talk about, it's not just for atmosphere, it's actually to enable benchmarks to be established. And benchmarks are relevant to the intended purpose of the device. So, you know, we have this thing, if, if you've got a, a, a neurostimulator for pain management, you're not going to compare it to a TENS machine because you're never going to use a TENS machine if that was inappropriate. And, and having that context means that you don't have to write pages and pages about lots of devices that are irrelevant, but by the same token, you'll get the ones that are really critical uh, and you'll you know make sure that it's clinically relevant. So we are very over time. If we could just, you know, Sally, are there any key takeaways that you wanted to state before to just wrap up today? Yeah, for sure. I don't think we, we touched on PMCF, but this is a really important area that we can help with, particularly because physicians will understand how patients are managed. So they will know, you know, the typical follow-up times, the typical um, endpoints and um, various different investigations that are done throughout the lifetime of the device and the follow-up periods that patients typically undergo. So I think just to summarize these that you're asking for is that I think physicians can help get it right first time. I think we can talk the same language. The notified bodies have a lot of physicians um, on board now. It's a clinical exercise, so they can help you define the scope, get the right endpoints, tell the right story, get it right the first time, talk the same language as the notified bodies. And, you know, let's face it, that's actually um, good regulatory practice and good business practice. And hopefully you'll get your submissions through fairly quickly. Makes sense. Well, thank you, everybody. Back to you, Steve. Thanks, Lisa. A huge thank you for everyone for joining uh, today's show, and thanks for your questions and commentary. They most definitely elevated today's conversation, so thanks a lot. Uh, you'll be emailed a, emailed a recording of this session by tomorrow. Uh, we'll also publish this to our Device Advice podcast by early next week. Uh, so if you aren't yet subscribed to our podcast, uh, please search Device Advice in whatever podcast platform you use, and we should show up. Um, if we don't, I'd be very interested in knowing that, so please please let us know. Uh, our next RQM Plus live show is a sequel uh, to a popular topic we previously discussed around biocompatibility. Uh, the date of that one is April 7th, and you can register in the Knowledge Center at rqmplus.com or click the link in the chat that I shared earlier. And finally, if you're a LinkedIn user, please follow the RQM Plus company page. Uh, we're always sharing free industry-leading resources, uh, blogs, white papers, webinars, live shows like this one. Uh, and more, as well as career opportunities, uh, too. So we'd really appreciate it if you followed us there. Uh, that's all we have. Thanks again. We'll see you again soon.